Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short controlled bursts. My name is John Engel. And I'm Scott Corelli, and today we're talking about Minute 14, which begins with Burke buzzing Ripley's door and ends with Ripley saying she's not a soldier. And once again, we have Lindsay Romaine back with us. Hey, Lindsay, thanks for coming back. Hey, thank you. All right, so we uh, we finally found out what, for sure, what Burke was going to do. He was going to ring the doorbell, because his hand, at the end of that last minute, was just hanging right there mm-hmm. ready to do it so he rings the doorbell and he's got somebody with him he introduces to ripley after she opens the door and this is uh lieutenant gorman uh played by william hope so we have a new cast member and kind of a major cast member to talk about a little bit here we don't have to get into him too much i just wanted to give him a credit so burke has brought some military with him here so i guess uh, some shit's gone down huh yeah i've gotta i've gotta talk about this this door joke because the the thing where she opens she opens the door he starts to introduce her introduce the person that he brought and she shuts the door in his face and it's shot from a different angle but it's it just reminds me so much of the ghostbusters thing with yeah <laughs> the ghostbusters <laughs> moment where uh dana is zool and she shuts the door and built in uh Bankman's face it's i i just I, I'm sure that it's just a coincidence and it's not like a reference to this big hit movie she was in two years prior. Um, but I do think it's funny that she has the same joke in two different movies. That is that that's I, I just I, I'm fascinated by that, that that uh, happened this way. Well, I, I have no evidence to support this, but I am go- I have decided that Sigourney Weaver brought this to the set that day. <laughs> I'm thinking she she did it in another movie. And she brought it with her. She said, worked the last time. Maybe she didn't even tell anybody. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe Riser was able to keep a straight face there. Who knows? Because uh, it could have been that she opened the door and he gives her. Maybe this was a uh, maybe this was a master shot. And we were going to have a little, you know, more of the the close up over the shoulder stuff that we get here in a second. But maybe she did that. And they decided to go with the joke. I've decided that's what happened. Somebody proved me wrong. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I like it, you know. I guess you got to answer the door. You make sure it's not some important package or a check somebody, you know, your dead uncle sent you or something. But once you see, if you see Paul Reiser, you know, Burke from the company there, you're probably just going to shut the door on him. Didn't have too good of an experience with him before. So uh, something about the door I wanted to point out, I meant to mention it. We got, you know, it's just a small detail from the last minute, but we get a sound effect in the last minute when Van Leeuwen, when Ripley finally allows him to pass, you hear the whooshing open of a door. Did you guys notice that? No. no. Yeah, it's something I'd never noticed before either until I watched this minute a few times. But it's a classic, you know, the classic Star Trek whooshing door open, uh, the door of the future, right? And here we very specifically get a hinged door. I think that's an interesting juxtaposition to show. Well, yeah, the corpor- the corporation, the company, they're going to have whooshing automatic doors uh ripley's clearly not in a good spot here uh that raises another question but she does have a, a classic old school hinged door which i mean i really hope we don't have those anymore by then i mean i want wishing <laughs> doors you know sometime within the next 10 years so i don't know yeah what's but, even the point of the future if we don't have future doors i don't know why what do i have to like grab knobs for the rest of my well man that came out wrong <laughs> what do i have to turn knobs? never mind Ugh, sorry um, but where do we think she is right now? Some sort of like industrial apartment complex or something. I have no idea. Is she pl- is she planet side or is she still on the space station? Oh, well, I don't know. I would guess the space station, but I, I don't know. That's just 
how I see it in my head. Mm-hmm. That's how I've always seen it too. Scott, did you ever I, think yeah, she was I mean, back I, on Earth? I, I think she must still be on the space station because that, that apartment, if I mean, and that's calling it that's generous, um, <laughs> is way too small. It's It feels more like a dormitory kind of setup on, that you would get as a dock worker on a space station. Right. I mean, it could be, you know, that the planet is so overpopulated that everybody has to live like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've never once until today thought about her being anywhere but on the space station. This has always been my assumption. And then I thought today, I'm like, wait a minute, maybe she uh, maybe she got down to the planet. Maybe this is that space station isn't really that big, is it? You know, maybe people don't a lot of people don't live there. I don't know. But I thought that was a question that probably should be raised. I'm sure some people ask that question when they're watching this movie. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the coffee. Yes. Uh, because I I love that she's making them coffee, and I love what it says about Ripley. And there there's certainly a gender politics element to it. However, uh, what I like about it is that it it introduces Ripley as the kind of character who can't help but do something. Yeah. Um, you know, she's got these people around. She doesn't want to help them, but she can at least make them coffee. Like, she can't help but do something. She can't just sit there and do nothing, so she makes coffee. Uh, I love that. I think that's a good way to read it. I, I You could also read it that, look at this hovel she's living in. She's not going to, if she's going to be hospitable to show that it's, no, no, like, this is my home. I'm good here. You want some coffee? You know, she's not going to pretend like it's not a hospitable place for other people. There's also the uh, the fact that this movie was uh, this movie was filmed in England, and I spent some time in England. And you don't go somewhere, <laughs> nowhere I went, nor did I have anyone come over that did not expect tea or something. Put the kettle on was always the thing they'd say. So I kind of wondered if too if that kind of bled down into the scene a little bit. But yeah, it's a good reading though. I like yours a lot better because it, it's character. It's good, got a lot of character to it. Yeah. I also really like something I love to notice. I just, I really like set design and all of that stuff. And I love in future movies, just seeing what like basic household items look like and just like how they sort of imagine that. And I just like the fact that it's like these little glass, like clear uh, cups. I don't know. I don't even know if that's rare, but it just is like a neat little, futuristic touch that i appreciate mm-hmm. yeah, she's got a nice stainless pitcher for the coffee i'm assuming it's a french one of those french press pitchers mm-hmm. you know i i'm a big fan of coffee and I, I like to think about those kind of i have a few of those kind of things around the house i imagine she did a little french press for him she only pours gorman like is it even a half a cup of coffee <laughs> it looks like a third <laughs> or, or is she pouring what she has left of her coffee i don't know but yeah I didn't know that we'd be talking so much about the coffee today, but yeah, that's, that's it's a good detail though, and it adds yeah. a dynamic to the scene. I mean, we're we have a big exposition scene here, right? First thing you got to think about when you're directing a movie and you're blocking a exposition scene is you got to make it some kind of dynamism going on in the scene, or it's you don't want it just sitting at a table over the shoulder shots the whole time. You got characters doing something physically, interacting with the set. And doing things that keep the eyes moving and not get too bored, so you won't get too bored with the conversation. But um, and and you know this is a really big moment in the movie when you think about it in the in the classic uh, hero's journey. Here we're getting the denial of the call right now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's very quick and to the point. 
too, because we get it all. I mean, we pretty much get the whole thing in this minute, don't we? Um, yeah, she's a, I mean, obviously she doesn't want to go back. It's kind of an absurd thing to ask her, isn't it? I mean, I would be very trepidatious about asking someone, unless I guess you don't believe her. I don't know. Do you think, do you think that Burke believes her? Uh, yeah, I think just given what we know later, it seems like he probably does. Um, but yeah, I'm not positive. I think he does. Yeah. You mean it? Does he believe her story because he believes her, or does he believe her story because he has information? I mean, is that what you guys are implying? Is that the company does know a lot more than they let on? And yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. And you know, when they look at the situation, the one person. Well, I guess there's two things we could look at here. She's the person, the only person that's ever interacted with this species, so she might be helpful. Also, she's the only person that would know maybe that they knew about it all along and maybe that she needs to go on this trip so she never comes back. Mm-hmm. That's that's absolutely the impression I get from it is that luring her away to sort of get get rid of her. Yeah, I, I don't think they have uh, any intention of uh, fulfilling the promises that he uh, offers her in the next minute. I, I think that it, it is more that, oh, she was right, so we need to get rid of her because we're going to look really bad if we just dismissed her and, and you know shoved her into a job on a dock somewhere when all of these innocent people died. Uh, we could have put a stop to it if we had listened to her, but we chose not to. So that's going to make us look really bad. So it's probably best that we just get rid of her and, uh, you know, plead ignorance. I mean, there's a record of her telling them about it. So, yeah. I mean, I guess they do, you got to shred those documents, uh, however you do that in the future, and, and um, get rid of the person that can blow the whistle. Yeah. I never really thought about that before. That's funny. Well, we get. Uh, I, I do want to point out that we're getting some classic '80s yuppie banter from uh, from Burke here. Mm-hmm. The the classic '80s appropriation of Spanish into your sentences, calling these colonial colonial Marines some real tough hombres. Yeah, I don't mean to make everything like a Trump thing, but that immediately made me think of Trump's bad oh, yeah. uh, line. Just even the way he says it, it just kind of like is that smarmy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it just comes off that way. <laughs> well, to me, it being a, a guy that grew up in the 80s watching tons of television, and we mentioned it last week, actually, that uh, there's a little bit of Peter Peter Scolari in Newhart. I don't know if you guys yeah. are aware of that of that character, if you guys watched Newhart at all, but P- Peter Scolari played this real schmarmy but heart of gold yuppie, classic 80s yuppie on that show, and he would always flip around these little like Spanish phrases here and there, mix them in with English to be clever, and this is totally what this is. And he's, I mean, this is classic 80s yuppie we've got here with Burke, for sure. Well, and it's it's classic uh, James Cameron, right? Because he would go on to make a Spanish phrase uh, one of the most memorable cinematic lines of all time in uh, an upcoming, uh, in another sequel that he would take <laughs> on a few years later. So That's a very good point. I didn't think about that. But, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, I'm not saying James Cameron was a classic 80s yuppie, but... He might have been. He might have been the kind of guy. I, we might scour some interview footage from that period, and we might catch a few of those yeah. moments from him. But yeah, I could see it. But I think it's it's good. It's perfect for schmarmy, wormy, yuppie corporate guys. Perfect mm-hmm. to represent that. We don't get a representation of that in Alien. We don't get any representation of the company other than a robot. You know, an evil robot. But as far as what they're talking about all the time in Alien is. What's going on back home? The company, 
we don't get any representation of that. Well, it's 1986 when we first do. It's probably going to be pretty 80s. I mean, we, we haven't really talked any about the flipped collars. We haven't talked about any of the other things, but <laughs> yeah, the hair, everything. It's it's perfect. You know, to me, it's it's perfect representation of the time. It doesn't. I don't think it dates the movie though. Like it doesn't. To me, that could be. It's kind of a timeless thing, even though it is representative of a specific time. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. I think if a guy came up to you right now in t- 2017 and started talking like that, it would be the same kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But and like you said, Trump's still around doing it. You know, he's just an artifact from that that way of thinking. So we still have it going on. Yeah, absolutely. So what she says at the very end of this minute is huge as well. It obviously, it fits into this deny the call moment. But very specifically for this movie, saying I'm not a soldier, mm-hmm. uh, that's called like what you're sparking the arc or whatever you want to call it. Her arc is, uh, in one way of looking at it, the the evolution of a of a minor engineer, whatever you want to call her, to a soldier. Because clearly that's what she is by the end of the movie. So we get her right on the nose saying that that's not what she is. So we started the journey from that point, and we're moving on from there. But I think it's good. It's impactful and it's a, it's appropriate. It's an organic thing. You know, nothing's wrong with a little on the nose as long as it is something that the person would actually say, and it contributes to the story in general. So I like it as a line. Again, there's a few on the nose things. There's very Cameron esque moments. He's a very on the nose writer. Uh, there's some Cameron esque moments in this movie, but they tend to work at least at this point in the film uh, to bring us into Aliens and to get us into the story a little bit quicker. And but also calls back to Alien, and I, and I think it's important to to hang a lantern on the fact that uh, he is going to be placing her in a very different situation than uh, where she was in Alien. Um, you know, it because if you don't have her outrightly stating like I am not a soldier, I don't belong with those people, I don't belong in that world then it could be, theoretically become a criticism of the film. It could be, you know, uh, the sort of thing that, you know, a, a film critic or anyone watching the movie could watch that and say, yeah, the movie was fine, but she didn't really belong in that world, did she? And this is Cameron stating, no, she doesn't. She doesn't belong in that world. And that's what the movie's about. Yeah. And, you know, I think that we've got two different Ripley's, of course. We'll see it more play out as the as the film goes along but we had a survivalist right that's ripley wasn't the pursuer by any means in alien she was a survival she was trying to get out alive she has to take on the persona of a soldier to a certain extent by to do that she has to arm herself she has to attack uh she had to make a, a plan of attack at the end of alien in order to survive in this movie she's going to become the pursuer and it's sort of the, the old cliche about soldiers that they run into trouble in this case, we're, we're we're creating a character that is both you know maternal, and and thus has to become a, a, a soldier in order to fulfill that maternal duty that she feels towards Newt. So here we're getting her say no, she's not, and it's true, she's not a soldier yet. She had to act like one for a minute, but it certainly didn't define her or shape who she is now. But when she, as this story, subtly defines her in a different light and gives her a different duty other than just survival, uh, self-survival, then she has to become a soldier and she has to go on the attack. And, and it's a good start. It's good, you know, why not just have the character say it flat out <laughs> while she's denying everything else, deny what she's going to be defined as by the end of the movie. Totally. Yeah, I also really like um, 
the cool thing about her saying that line is that it does come so shortly after we see her kind of worrying about the families on, you know, this other this moon. Uh, it just it makes her this really complex and multifaceted female lead, which is that she's concerned about people, but she's also sort of about to become this this soldier. Uh, I don't know. Ripley's just awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, in that context, you guys weren't here for the for the discussion of the cut. Uh, Amy Ripley moment scene, but uh, since we're talking about things like that, are you guys pro or anti Amy Ripley? Uh, Do you feel like this is good enough what you get here or does it help? Does it enrich in Ripley's arc to know that she was a mother? Um, For me, it enriches it. I'm actually pro that. I I don't necessarily think it needs to be in the movie, but it doesn't take anything away from me. Um, And maybe that's just again, because I am a woman and that's, that moment was really touching for me just as a daughter and everything. Um, how heartbreaking that must be. I don't think you need it because obviously the new, uh, relationship kind of tells you what you need to know about how maternal Ripley is, but I like it personally. Mm -hmm. I, I also like it. Uh, I agree that you don't have to have it. I think the movie works without it. But I, I like it for two reasons. One, uh, for the setup of the sort of maternal arc that goes, that goes down here. Um, but also, I like it as a uh, sort of like a context moment of, you know, they say that she was in cry- cryosleep for almost 60 years, but this, that moment sort of solidifies that of what would that feel like? You know, it's, it's that, it's that Captain America on ice kind of moment um, for her where she, where she's like, Oh, everyone that I knew and loved is gone and I'm all alone. Um, I don't think that you, I, I think you get that to a certain extent through, uh, you know, Ripley's like body language and the way that she plays these early scenes a lot. Um, but I like that Amy Ripley scene specifically for the added context of, oh, she really was gone for that long. Right, right. So, see, I don't like that particular thing. It's interesting that you put it that way, but I'm I'm going to disagree. I I like keeping Ripley as defined by having to go back into back to that planet and back to the, I don't care. I kind of don't care if it's the future. I, it could have been 20 years or 30 years. I kind of don't care. And that's, I really, I've already said how I feel about the Amy Ripley thing. I, I think it's perfectly fine for Ripley just to be maternal. I don't think she has to have had to been a mother to be maternal. I don't think it that it's, it's like she's regretful of, abandoning her child or something is necessary for that, her relationship with Newt to work. But I also kind of feel like it's, it's too uh, an added layer that we don't need to, I, I get what you're saying, Scott, but I, I just don't, I don't guess I feel the same way. I was, when you mentioned the Captain America thing, I always think of the little comedic moments. I'm not sure I'm not an expert on the Marvel cinematic universe by any means, but I always feel like the fish out of water thing with Captain America has a lot more to do with comedy than it does with actually the character. But I could be wrong with that about that. But in this case, I just like that. She's going back. I, I, I just like thinking, okay, the, her problem is her conflict is going back into the fray and it doesn't really matter. She doesn't spend any time in the future. If you think about it, she's actually taking them back to where she came from. So I don't know. I guess we uh, we disagree about that one thing. 
Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree. I do. I don't love it. I don't hate it. Uh, for me, it doesn't really change much about how I feel. So it's just sort of a, mm-hmm. you know, I'm fine with it. But I see all of your points as well. I do. I, I will say that I do enjoy Alien Isolation and the story arc of Alien Isolation, which requires Amy Ripley to exist. So I'll <laughs> give that one to the gamers out there, which I am not, though I do enjoy that game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like. Like you said, I, I I like it as an optional uh, layer yes. uh, for for the film. I I don't think it's necessary. Um, I completely agree with that. Yeah, I think one of the things I do also kind of like about it, not to keep talking about this, but um, you know, a lot of times in stories like that and in history, you know, you think of a a mother who's lost her child as just being this like grieving, weeping person for the rest of their life. So in a way, it's a neat character thing to know that she's sort of lost in a sense, lost this child and it's not, it doesn't hold her back from being a badass for the rest of the movie. She's not some weeping willow because of it. So right. no, she does something about it instead of, yeah, that's a good point. I mean that, I don't know. That just never landed with me, I guess. So, but that is a good point. That's a new way I'll look at it the next time I, I watch the director's cut or because you're right. I mean, it's nice to see a character respond to uh, trauma, to trauma, or to mourning, to grief, in a way that isn't just like withering up and dying. And right. see a woman find out she okay. I mean, I have a problem a little bit with Ripley even going on this the Nostromo mission. To be honest, yeah. I, mean, I can't help it. How long are they gone? Seven, I think it's supposed to be seven years or so. You're leaving your kid at that age. Uh, it's tough for me to swallow. It makes me feel a little bit differently about Ripley. But at the same time, that would be maybe that was a hard decision she had to make. And yeah. now she deeply regrets it. But instead of beating herself up about it, she she does something to try to help herself. And in, the, and in doing so, she ends up helping another child and redeeming herself. So I guess I see that. I see that. Right. All right. Do we have anything else for this minute? Um, I mean, we could talk about the coffee some more, but I think I'm good. <laughs> what kind of, do you think it was a, like a Yemen or a, a Rwandan <laughs> coffee? Oh, we could talk about that. I couldn't tell just by the color, but... I funnily enough, I actually do have more notes on the coffee uh, in tomorrow's minute. So <laughs> okay, we'll talk about it tomorrow then. <laughs> All right, well that's going to do it for minute number fourteen. Uh, you can find us over at alienminute.com, on Twitter at alienminutepod or on uh, Instagram at alienminutepodcast. Uh, also come over to our T Public page, buy some T-shirts. We got some fun designs over there, and uh, yeah, I guess that's going to do it for minute fourteen. We'll see you tomorrow for minute number fifteen.